All right. Good morning, Dorisville. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Amen. I was reading the scriptures this morning, and David said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And we are so glad that you are here with us. Personally, let me welcome Carrie and Cindy Maxim here. Uh, they're very good friends from a long time ago at Dorisville. Carrie's claim to fame was he passed out one day while I was preaching. So that's his claim to fame. We are so glad to have you guys. God bless you so much for being here. And we are glad to be back. The Africa team is glad to be back. We had a wonderful, wonderful trip. And we'll be sharing that with you on February the 12th in the evening service. You'd be very, very proud of your team that went to Africa, the way they shared the gospel, and the way they served. It was an incredible, incredible thing. Now, you probably figured out it's kind of an unusual thing for me to be out of the pulpit two weeks in a row, especially when I'm here. Let me tell you the story. Way back in the fall... Um, Tyler, was, Tyler Billman was in the deacons meeting giving his testimony uh, and to talk with the deacons. And he shared that night. And when he finished and the meeting was over before he left, I said, Tyler, would you pray about speaking on Baptist Men's Day? And uh, that was the beginning of it. And I left it with him and several times went back to him and said, are you praying? Are you praying? And then about, oh, about a, a month and a half ago, I think, I think, I, I wrote him an email and I said, hey, and by the way, um, you know, I'm thinking about you having, you speak on parenting. You know, we're in our 1090 program, looking forward to the first 10% helping us for the rest of the 90% of the year. And I said, it would be so cool if Jim was up there with you and you could kind of tag team and share. And that's what happened. And I want to tell you something. I am so genuinely excited that this young couple up here uh, fixing to speak to us today. I, I deeply admire Tyler. I think I met Tyler when he was about 16 years old. And I've watched him grow into an incredible man of God. And then when he and Jim were married, them to come together and be an incredible team, both as husband and wife, but also as mom and dad. And with all my heart, I believe the divine appointment is here today. So if you're a young person, a young parent, I want to encourage you to fine-tune your ears and listen to the Holy Spirit. If you're a grandma or grandpa, if you're a medium parent, God has a message to share through Tyler and Jen today. And I'd like to pray for them before they come up and speak. Father, I want to thank you for this incredible moment. Father, a moment that I have been looking forward to since October. And I want to thank you for the obedience, Father, of Tyler and Jen and their willingness to share today. Father, this is a man... And this is a woman after your own heart. Father, I see it played out in each one of the roles of their lives. So, Holy Spirit, I am asking you to anoint them, to fill them, and to use them today to speak to our hearts. And, Holy Spirit, would you seize the congregation today? Would you seize the hearts of the people? And, Father, create an environment where you can speak to their hearts. And if there's someone here today who has never trusted Christ, may today be that day. If there's someone who needs a word of encouragement, if there's a parent here who might be discouraged, a grandparent who might be discouraged, would you use this time to give that word of encouragement? So bless this dear couple. And Jesus, I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's just establish 
how strange it is for me to be talking to all of you about fatherhood and parenting. Because in my mind, I'm 16. And in some of your minds, I'm 16. But the jig is up. We both got old. That happened. Uh, you know, we have an introduction. Uh, you know, Dwayne kind of introduced us, but uh, some of you, some of you know us very well. Some of you have absolutely no idea who we are, and that's okay. You're going to get to know us pretty well by the end of this. Uh, so I want to uh, first introduce you to uh, our children. We have uh, three boys. If you want to go ahead and, and flip that, oh, aren't they cute? Yeah. Looks can be deceiving. Uh, so we have three boys, or uh, for you old-timers, uh, my three sons. Uh, I, our oldest is Noah, and he just turned eight. Uh, our uh, middle guy is Andy, and he is five. Noah's in second grade, and uh, Andy is in kindergarten. And, uh, and then Seth is two and a half. And as some of you might know we are expecting baby number four, and that is due in July. At, yes. Thank you. Uh, uh, when you announce to people that you're going to have a fourth child, um, many responses happen, uh, including why, uh, um, and also. Um, you know, some, some deeply personal questions, including, will you keep going until you get a girl? Um, and we have a lot, of, a lot of people that have said, you know, think pink, uh, you know, we're hoping this time around. Uh, you know, and so here's what we're going to say. Uh, we do not know the gender of this baby. Assume boy. Assume boy. We'll let you know if you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> But I can just see when we tell people, you know, uh, you know, it's going to be another boy. People are going to be like, oh, really? Again? Uh, you know, but uh, that, that's what God has blessed us with, and we are raising kings. Uh, raising kings for Christ. Uh, so uh, it's, we're kind of out of the Christmas mode, uh, but I want to share with you uh, something that I got for Christmas it is the least expensive thing that I received for Christmas, but definitely the most important. So if you want to show that book really quick, uh, the book is called What I Love About Dad. And it's kind of one of those books where the, the people who publish the book start the first portion of the sentence, and, and then your child is supposed to end the sentence. Um, and so that's always dangerous. I'm sure some of you know where this is going. Um, so... I just, I just wanted to share a few of them with you just to let you know a little bit about what my kids think about me. Why don't you show the first one? The first one is, you have the most handsome <laughs> chest hair. And honestly, they're not wrong, you know? <laughs> They're not wrong. I can't begrudge them of that, you know. But, uh, yeah, that, that one was like right at the beginning of the book, and I was like, okay, there's 50 more. Uh, so why don't you show the next one? Thanks for encouraging me to not be stupid. Good, you know. 
pat on my back, right? Uh, but then as the book continued, I won't share all of them, um, but the book got more, more personal about what my kids thought about me specifically as a father. I think it's so easy for us, specifically as dads, to say, mom's got it. Mom's got it. Um, because especially when they're young, they do gravitate toward mom. But your job, men, as a father, is critical to the development of your children. That's what we're going to talk about today. Show the next one. Yeah, you were right about marrying mom. These boys, I'll tell you what, a lot of people assume when you have this many boys that, oh, you have an army. No, I have three mama's boys. They are certified. They have signed the diploma that they are mama's boys. Listen, I could, they, they could hang me out to dry, they, they, but mama is queen, and that, that is, that, that's how that remains. Thanks for marrying mom. I love that you taught me to appreciate people. So part of my job on the day-to-day -day is to sit down specifically with students. Now, students does not necessarily mean young people. It can be all types of ages of people and talk with them about their life, essentially. Yes, part of my job is to make sure that they have an academic path. But in those conversations, we talk about life and we talk about how their life is going. And I've had some of those conversations with some people in this room, and I hold those conversations as a privilege, but my kids know that I appreciate all kinds of people because every single person can teach you something, can teach you something. Show the next one. I admire your dedication to God. The cutest thing about that is that they thought that was a B, and they were like, nope, just kidding, it's a D. Uh, <laughs> So I admire your dedication to God. You have no idea what your kids are actually watching, what your kids are actually listening to, what they're, what they're paying attention to. You don't know what's going on inside their little minds. They can look like they're drawing. They are hearing every single thing you say. It is terrifying. <laughs> but you have to be careful. And we're going to talk about that today as well. You have a responsibility because they are watching you. Now listen, we have young kids, but some of you do not, okay? We're going to talk about that parenting role doesn't stop at 18. We're going to talk about the grandparenting role today. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible, Colossians chapter 2 is where we are going to kind of situate our text this morning. Colossians chapter 2 Verses 6 through 10. So while you're turning there, you're probably wondering, um, how did Jenny get so lucky, right? How did I find the guy with the best chest hair uh, <laughs> in America, probably? And that's an easy question. So we coached speech together at Western Kentucky. That's where we met. And we're both very task-oriented people. If you know us, we are very focused. So we didn't speak for about six months. I don't remember a single conversation, though we were across the hall. And then in December, all of the coaches decided to go out for Japanese food, which I love. 
and there were about five or six of us that planned to go out. And when lunch rolled around, two people showed up, and it was Jenny and Tyler. We were the only ones who actually went for Japanese food. So our first day was a complete accident because five other people just didn't show up. Uh, but it was wonderful, and we had a great time talking, and we've been teammates ever since. So I'm really grateful that I was able to get up here with Tyler. Thank you for letting me tag along because we do everything together. You know, we, we speak together. We parent together. We've always worked together. We've always worked in the same place. There were a couple of years when he started at SIC that I was somewhere else, but otherwise we've been right there together, and we do very similar things. So he is my best sounding board and my expert for whatever I need help with. And I'm just so thankful that we get to do life together. That's been so fun. So one of the good parts about coaching together is that we got to practice parenting on other people's kids for quite a few years, right? We had dozens of kids come through, and we learned about things like problem solving, right? One of our speech kids is what we call them would split their pants, and you would sew up their pants and send them off to a round and pat them on the back. Or we would learn about communicating with each other or the way that people will try to play you against each other. We had lots of practice with that before our own kids tried it. So now we're like, we're on to you, right? You're not going to pull it through on us. But we also learned about how to manage stress and how to manage time. And we had lots of really good practice before we actually started parenting for real. But the problem with coaching a speech team is that you have no practice with babies, right? We had no practice with babies. So in December 2008, when Noah came along, we didn't know what we were doing. We were very overwhelmed. Uh, we were kind of surprised that they let us drive away with this baby, and we kept looking at each other like, when are his parents coming? You know, and then we would realize it was us, and no one was coming. And we had a lot of questions, right? Like, why does he cry all the time? Because he did. And why does he hate us? Are we sure this is our baby? Because he really doesn't seem to want to be around us. Or can we maybe trade him? Can we get like a docile baby? Because he was just so wild. Um, and then he went on a nursing strike when he was three days old and he refused to eat. So when you're a first time mom and your baby refuses to eat, you think, well, he's lost his will to live. He's so unhappy here. He doesn't want to be alive anymore. <laughs> and that was really hard, right? So we didn't know what to do. We just started reading uh, because that's how Tyler and I handle things as we read. And we research, and we do that together. So we're reading, and we're researching. We found a really, really good book that explains uh, everything you need to know about parenting. And it's actually this one. It's the Bible. And this is the book that, turn, that we turn to when uh, our kids really give us trouble. So if you've made it to Colossians 2, we're going to start on verse 6, and I'll read through verse 9 and 10. I believe we have this up. Yep. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ... You have been brought to fullness. So when we didn't know what to do, we knew that we could look away from the world and look to Christ. But that obviously comes out in a variety of forms. So Tyler's going to talk to you about a few of the more common ways that the world will try to give you a hollow and deceptive philosophy. And a few of the ways that the voices will speak to you and try to draw you away from Christ. Because it's not... An uncommon thing, it's, it's not an unusual thing, it happens in the same predictable ways a lot of times. All right. but, I, but 
first let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this time to speak about something that we are passionate about. And thank you for this opportunity to, to speak to these people. But Lord, you know that we do not have all the answers, that only you have all the answers, and that we turn to you in our greatest need, that you are our help. And so please help us to focus and help us to, to focus on what you want us to learn, what you want us to say, what you want us to listen to, because all of our eyes are on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So some of those deceptive and hollow philosophies that uh, she was speaking directly about, I, I want to talk about three. There are several. But the first one that I want to talk about is comparison. So the world is going to tell you how to parent. The world's going to tell you how to do everything. Okay? But the world specifically is going to tell you how to parent. And one primary way they're going to tell you how to parent is through comparison. So how many of you in here have a social media account? Just by a show of hands. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Those are all the ones that I know about. There are several more. But I will tell you that the worst thing to happen to parenting is social media. The worst thing to happen to parenting is social media. Because there is this new phenomenon out there called oversharenting. And that is where you need to tell every little detail about your child, as long as it's good, every little detail about your child to the world, you know? So this is the first generation of children that has been born under this social media that we know about that is very relatively common for all of us to, to use on a daily basis. It's how we connect with other people. But this is the first generation of children that doesn't know anything else. This is all they know. And you can tell. I mean, you ask any four-year-old, you go down to the children's department, you ask any four-year-old, they know how to pose for a picture, and they know which filter makes them look best. They know. They understand. My children have even asked me, because I am guilty as charged, what I am telling you is not like, well, we're above it all. We don't do these things. You know, There is no holier-than-thou standing up here before you. But I will tell you that my children know, if I make a Facebook status post about them, they will ask me, how many likes did I get? <laughs> Can you read me the comments? Uh, for Noah's birthday, we just had his birthday in December. Uh, <laughs> he had all these things that he wanted to do. He was really smart. He said, I don't want a birthday party. I want you to spend all the money on me. Uh, <laughs> and one of his goals uh, was that he wanted to make a viral video. Some of you might have seen it. We did not put it in the presentation because it's just him flipping a water bottle, it landing, and then screaming at the camera. That's the whole video. 500 people liked that. 500 people were like, yes, flipping that water bottle. That's such a good, good idea. Social media offers us a metric for how well we're doing. You know, I have a coworker, and she uh, posted that her child, <laughs> their child is now potty trained. Um, now, I do want you to process that she put for the world to know that her child goes boom, boom on a toilet now. And 150 people liked that. 
And 36 comments later, we have comments like, Woot! And what a relief. And finally, in all caps. And I read that post. And do you know what I thought? That child is one month older than Seth. Seth's not potty trained. Seth still sucks his thumb. Seth still has to be rocked every single night. You might say 30 minutes, you might say 45 minutes, you might say an hour, how long was it last night? I think it was, it was two and a half hours last night. <laughs> Seth will ask for his own bottle. He will say, I need a bottle, please. <laughs> can I tell you that if your child can ask for a bottle, please, your child, in fact, does not need a bottle. <laughs> But he gets one. <laughs> and that is because we want to sleep in this decade. <laughs> but social media offers you this metric on how well you're doing, how cute your family is, where you've been. It's the highlight reel. But what you don't see is the person sitting across town in their home going, I'm not doing that. They're doing better than me. I must be a bad parent. Social media is not the only way in which we compare ourselves, you know? We just compare ourselves in the way in which we are parenting. We have this awesome Sunday school class and we are able to uh, talk back and forth about the ways in which we are navigating through our families. but. Part of that is we discover how other people parent. And so there's this comparison of how one person parents versus how I parent. And is that ever going to be good enough? And am I actually ruining my child by doing the things that I'm doing? You know, you spank your child. Oh, I would never spank my child. Or you don't spank your child. That's what's wrong with this country. You know, well, we decide, well, you know, we decided to buy Timmy a new car. Because, you know, his best friend got a new car. And, well, you know how it is. Mom, Dad, my life is awful. My friends go on vacation every year. Why don't we? There is this craving to be liked and to be like everyone else. That's the world. That's the world we live in. And it's dangerous, specifically when raising children, because as verse 8 indicates, I don't know if you can go back or not, but as verse indicates, it is a hollow and deceptive philosophy. The world is going to tell you through hollow, empty, deceptive philosophies how to do things. That's the world. That is not God. That is the world. Number two, we compare our kids with other kids. You know, so many parents will compare their children to motivate their kids. You know, Timmy's doing this. You should do this. Everybody's doing this. Why don't you do this? Let me tell you a story. How about that bit me? So Andy, listen, if you have the last name Billman, you assume everybody likes to sing. If you ask Andrew Billman, do you like music? He'll go, no. No. And he doesn't. Honestly, he doesn't. 
So, like good parents, we decided to push him. And we were going to make him like singing. So, where is Rachel? Rachel knows where this story is going because she remembers this rehearsal. So Andy, they were all in here and they were singing songs and they were doing actions. And Noah was up there and he was just giving it, you know, five, six, seven, eight, one, you know. And here's Andy. Andy just sits on the steps and he's just like looking at the other kids like, you are so dumb. <laughs> but it didn't stop there. See, Andy did not know that I was watching. It did not stop there. Andy decided to make himself like a stiff board and just slide down the stairs. Oh, that was pretty fun. Let's do it again. And slide down the stairs until finally I was like, we're done. This is not going to work. You really don't like this. You know, we compare our kids with other kids to motivate, to push them. God made our children, whatever their ages, because some of you are dealing with this specifically from a teenage realm, God made all of our children unique. And he gives us unique instructions on how to parent. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Verse 9, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. This world is to be rejected. It's hollow. It's deceptive. It's human philosophy, which is flawed. We are to follow holy God in the ways in which we do life. Christ and his gospel are the standard. And if Christ did not compare himself to how others are doing life, and he didn't, then neither should we. Number two, consumerism. To be a good parent, you need to overbuy for your family. So there's this documentary on Netflix, and it's called Minimalism. That's the title. Of course it is. They're not going to think of anything creative on a documentary about minimalism. It's just called Minimalism. And part of the documentary is saying that achieving the American dream has often translated in material terms. We buy so much because it always seems like something is missing. That's true. But they don't exactly know what is missing, so then they just buy a bunch of stuff. There is this mindset that we need something new or different all the time, that nothing will ever be good enough. And that has influenced the ways in which we view relationships. That has influenced the way we view marriage. That has influenced the way we view our children. The last line of the documentary, we love things and use people. And we need to use things and love people. Products are replacing relationships. Parents are willingly embracing these crazy astronomical work schedules in order to meet the demands of consumerism. Now, you might say, well, that's just what my job asked me to do. Uh, they, they asked me to do these things, and I have to do it, or they're going to fire me. But we take on all these things extra 
to supplement this overarching demand that we must, in order to fully provide for our family, buy more than what we actually need. Pew Research in September 2016 released the following statistics on our work-life balance. In the U.S., 85.8% of males and 66.5% of females work more than 40 hours a week. On average, Americans work 260 more hours per year than British workers and nearly 500 more hours per year, per year than French workers. And we often use these products to satisfy the parenting style that we are simply too exhausted to give. Let me paint a scenario for you. You have worked all day long. You go to the grocery store because you have nothing in your cabinet. And so you're going to buy food so that you have something to feed your family. And while you're there, you decide, you know what, I really miss my kids, so I'm going to buy them a toy. And so then you bring that home. And then you fix dinner, which is the feed in of itself, because most people will probably just go through a drive through But work with me. You give the toy to your child. Your child's so happy. Yay! But that did two things. Number one, it made you feel good about yourself, even though you worked a little extra that day. You made your child happy. But because you're so exhausted, it also made your child go away. Because you gave them a toy to play with. And that set them into the other room. And that fixated their time so you can just turn on that television and go away. What that is doing is creating a generation of children that are currently suffering from anxiety and depression because nobody's listening to them. Because no one is paying attention to them. Because no one is sitting them down and getting in their face even when they say, I don't want to talk to you. Children don't actually know what they need. So you have to be the adult in the situation and say, my child needs me to talk to them. And so at first it's going to start as kind of forceful, but then it's going to come as routine. Now, we don't do many things right, but one thing that we just naturally do that I did not realize that other people don't do until we started talking about it with kids on our speech team is... Uh, at the dinner table, we, we sit down at our dining room table every night. Well, 80% of the time. Let's, let's not go so far with 100%. 80% uh, of the time, we sit down at the dining room table. That's where we have dinner. Now listen, we're not cooking some fine cuisine. Some of you have all already heard Jenny's cooking stories. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not going grandiose here. It might be fish sticks. But we're sitting down at the dining room table, and we do something called highlights. And low lights. This was because when our child went to kindergarten, Noah, we would say, how was your day? Fine. And then we would have to hear actually how the day went from a parent-teacher conference. Like we wouldn't actually know what the child was doing all day long because you'd go, fine. So if you put it into a structure, highlight, low light, tell me the best thing that happened in your day, tell me the worst thing that happened in your day. And they have to answer. Now, for Seth, it's gobbledygook right now. 
But for Noah and Andy, sometimes this leads into a 15-minute conversation where they're just talking about what happened on the playground and who said what and what we did today and how that substitute really was. You know, <laughs> they are discussing things that we would never get out of them before because we sit down and we make them tell us. So the second thing that consumerism does is it promotes this throwaway culture. We get bored easily with things. We as a culture value what is new over what is lasting. Um, David Hicks is going to have a coronary. I have an iPhone 5. Jenny has an iPhone 4S. This iPad that she plays the piano on is a generation one. This is the first iPad that was made. When this goes out, we're going to give it to a museum because this is the last one left. We, we, we have this necessity to buy new things because I'm going to tell you, because I have an iPhone 5, because we have a Generation 1 iPad, not only do I want an iPhone whatever number they're on now and an iPad whatever number they're on now because there's going to be a new one in 30 seconds, I now, even though my iPhone works fine, I'm now dissatisfied with it. I'm finding things specifically wrong with it because I actually just want a new one. Because that, as American people, that's how we're trained. We have to have new. We live in a world where everything is seen as disposable. The world will tell you that everything is disposable. Now let's apply that to relationships. The world will tell you that you don't need to work on your marriage. Just go get a new one. And that it's okay to live like that because you've only got one life to live and you better just live your truth out. And you know, you can't spend your whole life being unhappy. And the world will tell you that you deserve everything because you work so hard. And so do your kids. Your kids deserve everything. And if you don't give it to your kids or if someone won't give it to your kids, then either you're a bad parent or that person who won't give it to them is also bad. And so that's how this discord happens. Most parents want the very best for their kids. Most families want the very best for their family members. So they will buy and they will buy and they will buy because they think that that is going to solve the problems. But instead of buying and pointing them to a product, we must, we got to point them to Jesus. So Matthew 6.19, do not store up your, for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Do not put your worth in earthly things. They are perishable. They are empty. Build your happiness in the ways in which you raise your children on a more certain foundation. I want the very best for my kids, so I don't want that to crumble. The only thing that doesn't crumble is God. If you go back to verse 10 of Colossians chapter 2, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ. We don't need more, more, more. We need Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The final philosophy is isolation. One common harm within parenting is to isolate ourselves there is a, it is no mystery that there is a father absence crisis in America. 
Um, one out of three kids do not live with their biological father in the home. And part of that reason is because fathers are so isolated. They feel as if they are supposed to be this stable, unemotional base of support. So if they can't do it all by themselves, then they just don't. They split. I, uh, it's really strange that I'm talking about fatherhood because that's actually what my dissertation was on. It was on fatherhood and higher education and how men navigate between their academic selves and their role in the house. And uh, I, I interviewed 12 men in fall 2014, um, and they were very different and, and odd, and their stories didn't look much like mine, except for the part where they said, I don't really talk about family with other people. I don't really talk about fatherhood with other people. I just don't think I should. It's too personal, they would say. Children form a great deal of their understanding of God as a heavenly father from their earthly fathers. And when dad is a mess, that's going to create trust issues for another father. When the family drifts, so will a kid's spirituality. And so we've talked about a lot of problems, uh, but there's more to the story. So it may sound like we are telling you uh, what not to do, but it's actually not that easy because the world will tell you over and over what you're supposed to be doing. And if you're not filling yourself with truth, then you're not going to know. So, you know, the world will shout at you. Your kids are going to beg and it's like you're taken captive. Verse 8 says, see to it that no one takes you captive. It's not that it's fun because you're just going to feel guilty. I felt guilty many times as a parent. And it's not intentional. It just is something that happens if you're not intentionally trying to find a better way. But there is a better way. Now, the Bible tells us that we need to be perfect. So that's kind of a high standard, right? You think you can't get what the world says. It's really tough to get to God's level of perfection. Matthew 5, 48 says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's Jesus talking. That's red letters right there. So that was really overwhelming to me. But when you read the commentaries, perfect in that sense doesn't mean without messing up. Because we're going to make mistakes for people, right? Perfect there means be everything God meant for you to be. Be exactly what God put you on this earth to be. That's what you need to be doing. So uh, one thing you might not know about me is I was a Girl Scout for years and years. I started in kindergarten and then went through high school, graduated high school as a Girl Scout. And Girl Scouts are really cool. There's some Girl Scouts here. Uh, and there were parts of it that I loved. I got to be a lifeguard at Girl Scout camp, so that was super fun. I got lots of good training. I got to travel. We went to London. My mom and dad are here. They remember sending me off on a plane to London. Um, that was really fun. We've been all over. But for the worst part, I was the world's worst Girl Scout. I was terrible at it for a few reasons. The first is Girl Scouts does a lot of outdoorsy things, and I'm the least outdoorsy person. Uh, this is why we make sense. We're actually a great match because I don't – I like to be outside when it's daytime and pretty weather, but uh, we had to, like, camp. And the last time I went camping, I was 23. I went with my mom and my dad and my brothers, and I just cried the whole time. I just sat outside and cried because there were bugs. My dad's like, get in there. And I'm like, I can't, there's bugs, right? So I, I was a bad fit for Girl Scouts. It didn't help that my sister was also a Girl Scout, and she was the best. She was an amazing Girl Scout. She got awards for it, 
right? She got a picture in the paper. People would interview her about how to be a Girl Scout. She got the Gold Award, which is the highest Girl Scouting award. So she was a, a Gold Award Scout. My brother's an Eagle Scout, if you're curious. So they're hitting it out of the park with scouting. My project never even got approved. So I was like the reject Girl Scout. I was the world's worst Girl Scout. But none of that mattered, right, when I moved away and became an adult. And it certainly didn't matter last summer when I watched my son walk across the diving board at the park pool because I thought he doesn't know how deep that water is. And they can swim a little bit, but usually it's from jumping off the bottom. They can push off the bottom and swim. But I knew he couldn't reach the bottom of a 10-foot pool. So I thought, I'm just going to walk over, make sure everything's okay. It's probably fine, right? When I got to where he was, he was just kind of bobbing quietly in the water. And it seemed okay, but I, in my lifeguard training, realized that you can't talk when you're drowning, right? There's no air to talk. Your body saves all that air to try to keep you alive. So the fact that he couldn't talk and he couldn't call for help was a bad sign. So it took me about two seconds to figure that out. And then I did a racing dive in, um, because I was a swimmer. And I grabbed him and I yanked him up. And I put him under my arm and I side stroke to the side. And the entire process took about five seconds from the time I got over there. So it was really quick. Um, and then I got out and I walked around. And a couple people stopped me, and many of you were there, and said, where did you learn how to do that? That was strangely specific. And I said, I was a lifeguard. And the truth is, it was those stupid Girl Scouts. It was Girl Scouts. The thing in the world I was the worst at is the thing that God used to save my son. I failed at Girl Scouts, I thought. And 20 years later, that's exactly what I needed. I have good news for you today. If you are failing, if you feel like you're failing, I failed. I failed so many times. Not just at God's standard of being perfect, but I legit fail, right? And people around me are like, you're terrible at that. You know, the cooking, the Girl Scouts. But God uses those things, right? Somehow God can use those things. And, and some, even when we fail on purpose, God can use that because our God is a God of redemption. And he can take people who fail, miserably fail, and he can make that right. Because God is also a God of love, and he loves you. And if you don't know today, he's not sitting up in heaven just waiting for you to fail or angry at you. He's thinking, I want you back. I want you back. Because God loves you specifically. And he sent Jesus for that reason. Because he knew you would fail. He knew it. And he said, I got a plan. I got it covered. So Jesus came and he puts his perfection on you. You get to take his perfection that you could never have. And he puts that on you. So it doesn't matter what you've done or how you failed. It doesn't matter. Because God can take that and he can make it new. And I wouldn't have believed it, but it's happened to me. And it can happen for you. So God can use your failure, not just work on you in spite of it, but because of it. The very thing you did that is the worst, that you're embarrassed about, God uses that. And sometimes it turns out to be exactly what you needed. If you'll think back in the Bible, you know, Jesus was preaching and thousands of people were there. He said, we need to feed them. We have two fish and five loaves. That's not going to be enough. But in the hands of God, it is. It was. It fed thousands of people. So when you're ready to give up being a captive and when you're ready to do it another way, God can do that. God can use that no matter what you are, no matter what you've done. And at the end of the day, that's what it means to be a good parent. It means that you're just letting God use you. Whatever you have, and it might be piles of failure, that's enough. That's all it 
That's all it takes. So that's what it means to be a good parent. But there's actually more because look at verse 10. The Bible says, in Christ you have been brought to fullness. It doesn't say enoughness, right? It doesn't say, you're, you're going to make it. I'm going to get you to where you make it. It says full. You are full in Christ. You are more than enough. All you need and then some, parents, is given to you in Christ. Everything you need. So sometimes in my class when I feel like I really need people to get something, I ask them to say it back to me. I hope you'll humor me here. I want you to say it back to me. In Christ, I am more than enough. Say more than enough. I am more than enough. I am full in Christ. Say it back to me. I am full in Christ. I am more than enough. I am full in Christ. When that starts to become the truth, when you start to believe that, and it's more than a Bible verse, but it is in your bones, that's when you're the parent that God made you to be. That's when you were perfect, not because you didn't make mistakes or because you didn't fail, but because you were exactly what God purposed for you. So that's step one, right? That's the most important step. And if that's all you take away from today, Tyler and I hope that you take that home. But there are a few other specific steps that we have as well to kind of help you along that journey. So the first one is um, seek ye first. Seek ye first. So in an airplane, if you've ever been on an airplane, one of the, after they get down with the exit signs, one of the first things they tell you to do is when the oxygen mask drops, please put the oxygen mask over your face. Then you may help the other person. What does that mean in our context? That means how are you supposed to help your child if you are not seeking him first? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 6, 33. If you are not fed, how are you going to biblically guide your children? Whatever their ages will be. So what does this mean? Choose time. Make time to spend with God. So just a short example. Jenny goes to this Bible study on Monday nights, and it's every other week. And basically... Our kids don't really see her that much on those Monday nights because she works all day, and then she goes to that all night. And I'm going to tell you, those, those boys grill me on those Monday nights. Where is mom? When's she coming back? What are we having for dinner? You know, uh, what about this? What about that? Da, 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 all these questions, they absolutely grill me. But the best answer I give them is, mom is learning about God. Mom is spending time with God. And I'm going to be honest with you, they don't like it because they really like their mom. But that teaches them it's a priority. Number two, serve. Parents have the task of helping their children develop emotionally, socially, intellectually, and spiritually. One way you can do this is to serve as an example and then also serve with your kids. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Hebrews 6.10. If you go to the next one, my favorite verse of all, but as for me and my house, we, we, not me, and you all can watch, we will serve the Lord. So we, we just had a group of people that just came back from Uganda. I'm going to tell you, you do not have to go on a mission trip to serve to serve the Lord with your family. 
we have this next door neighbor, and she's got a lot of problems. She's older, um, and it really started because Jenny decided to start bringing her meals about four times a week because, quite frankly, she wasn't eating. And last winter, uh, I shoveled off her driveway because we had a huge snow. And uh, sometimes Jenny thinks it's hilarious to um, have all the boys in our front living room and cheer for me. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so what that resulted in, though, is one year later, I get a picture at work, and it was just a dusting. But it was a picture of Noah shoveling off her driveway. Your children are watching. Your children are watching. So we have to build community to do this parenting, to do this family thing, right? And the first way we can do that is with our spouse. First place is always going to be with God. But if second place, if you're married, if second place is with your children, you're doing it wrong. Okay? Second place does not belong to your kids. It belongs to your spouse. Kids are often, uh, they, they, they have these immediate urgency things that happen. Somebody's bleeding, somebody's screaming, and so we immediately gravitate towards that. That's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a consistent choosing of your children over your spouse. That's just wrong. That's just wrong. Ecclesiastes 9.9, enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. Build community with grandparents. So we are privileged enough to have all four of the boys' grandparents with us today. And um, all I'm going to say is you're never too old to stop parenting. So we are not those parents that are like, we discipline them at home, they go to your house, have a blast, buy them all the things, send them home sugared up. No, if they need to be disciplined, that, they're on your time. Make it happen, you know. <laughs> you are never too old to pour into the lives of your children. If you have older children, you are never too old. My parents still pour into my life. I am 33 years old. They are not 33 years old. <laughs> they are still pouring into my life daily and into my kids' lives. You know, Psalm 92, 14 says, they will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. So my children learn from my father about serving other people. They know that Poppy goes on these benevolence runs, and they know that he still serves people in this community on a daily basis. From my mom, they learn about nurturing. She will sit and she will scratch their heads and they will tell her the most crazy stories. And then she will sit there for sometimes hours listening to them. Children need that. Jenny's mom, Tammy, offers them adventure and wonder and the ability to explore. And their grandfather, Alan, is literally my opposite in the fact that he can fix anything. I can fix nothing. He can fix everything. And so from him, they learn that everything is redeemable. He's the opposite of the throwaway culture. A piece of machinery can be burned five times. He's like, that's still good. 
We have to build community with our brothers and our sisters in Christ. 1 Peter 4 eight. above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. We can learn so much from other people who are walking with Christ and doing this thing called life. So listen, today's all fine and good. You know, life is all good, right? When your kids have straight teeth, everybody's making straight A's, college is paid for. But that's not necessarily realistic, is it? What happens when life is not so good? What do we do then? So as our our musicians come, I I definitely want to do something a little bit different today. Um, And we are more than out of time. But Dwayne took two minutes of this, so I apologize for nothing. (laughs) I want to have a time of prayer for our families. And I want this altar open, and I want you to come together as families, and I want you in January to pray for your family this year. What are you going to do this year? Are you going to let God guide you? Are you going to let God be in charge of the ways in which you instruct your children? Are you going to be, are you sitting there and you're saying, I haven't talked to a family member in uh, three years. Pray about it. Heal up those walls. It's time. And it's not going to be easy. And it's going to really hurt sometimes to do those things. It's going to really hurt. I can tell you personally. But God instructs us. God has a plan for each of our families. For what we're doing with our kids. For what we're doing with each other and building up our families under Christ. God has a plan for your family. God has a plan for every single person in your family. So today, I'm going to start us out and then I want you to come and I want you to pray over your family this year of what God is going to do in your family. Father God, thank you for today. And thank you for the words that you have given us, the words that you have given to teach us on what to do in every capacity of life, but specifically today with our family. God, we ask that you that you heal the wound build a a confidence in us to break down walls that might exist within our family, that you would give us the courage to step out and live exactly the way you want us to live. And I ask that if anyone feels led to come, they come. That if anybody does not know you today, they would get to know you today.